Hello, welcome to the Quest series. This is The Crisis of Our Times. My name is Alan Mulhern. A few announcements. The podcast in the Spanish language, which was released two weeks ago, was an experiment, but in fact went very well. And our small team are very encouraged, and we shall continue. We believe that there is a need, if not a hunger, for this type of knowledge in the Spanish-speaking world. So we will parallel the English series with a Spanish series, though it will take place less frequently than the bi-weekly series in English. Secondly, the anticipated premium podcast will be coming out. I'm now aiming for June. Its delay is simply because of the amount of preparation required for the current podcasts, both in English and now in Spanish. The evolving crisis requires constant fresh attention and thought, since the world situation is changing at such an extraordinary pace. Just one example. A few months ago, I referred to the current economic crisis as the Great Global Depression. This was quite bold, since many commentators at the time were talking in terms of recession. And no one I knew, with one exception, Thomas Malinen of GNS Economics, a wonderful and acute analyst, was talking about a long-term depression, and particularly a global one. But there are now more references to this possibility. I anticipate very shortly it will be a widely used term. Staying ahead of the pack, and in economics this is a very large group, requires a lot of thinking and preparation. Thirdly, there are some references in this podcast to some images in Egyptian mythology. These are on the website alamohern.com under the philosophy section. These podcasts explore the evolving crises of the 21st century. The virus pandemic, extremely serious though it is, has revealed the fracture lines of the world economy and its political systems. We have a series of crises, and if we wish to understand more of the world we have created, we have to understand them in their interacting totality, that is, as a system. The health crisis, the pandemic, has rapidly become an economic crisis of the first order, and in the wings is a financial one. You may gaze up at the awesome skyscrapers in the financial districts of New York, Chicago, San Francisco, London, Sydney, Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, Boston, Toronto, Mumbai, Beijing, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Shenzhen, the great financial centres who lorded over the rest of the economy, have governments in their pockets and think themselves beyond earthly gravity. Yet these are largely illusions of credit and money creations, and will fall, as they have done many times before. If they are so strong and important, why do they need trillions of dollars of bailout, cheap loans, government support, when the storm hits? Why are these institutions not capable of standing on their own feet? Why are they supported by government and therefore by the rest of the economy? Why are they not the centres of charitable donations to the hungry in the cities they preside over? Why have they not bought in or created the medical equipment needed to help millions? Why do we expect nothing from them when they have so much and have received so much and have done so little? What has happened to the modern economy that a vast appropriation of wealth has taken place by the financial system without a murmur from the population. 
who are so entranced by their phones, screens, entertainment, social networking, hypnotised by the technology of the modern world, that they don't realise what is happening in front of their own eyes. Even when the statistics of the inequality of global wealth are available to them on the search engines they are so attached to. You may feel uneasy at times by the darkness of the visions presented here, and parts of this episode to come may shock you. But you would not have got this far unless you were prepared to look at the darkness head on. If you are told, for example, that you have a very aggressive cancer, but if you undergo medical treatment, then you stand a chance of living. Is that not worth doing? If in the course of treatment you realise that you have contributed to the cancer by your style of life, and that if you change your diet, reduce stress, change work habits, stop smoking, reduce alcohol, boost your immune system, the chances of its reoccurrence are substantially reduced. Would you not do so? Or would you return to your old style of life? Is not life immensely precious? Only when one is about to lose it does one realise that it's worth everything to fight for. I say the above from experience. Five years ago, my wife and I were both told in the same week that we had very aggressive cancers. We both underwent practically simultaneous operations two months later. During the course of recovery and further treatments, we realised all of the above and that a change in our life was urgently required. My wife, who had the more deadly cancer, underwent the more extensive change and is still very much alive. Well, it's the same with our immensely precious planet, which we are poisoning, with its amazing life, which we are destroying, with our societies and economies, which are so grossly imbalanced. We are turning our planet, our cities, into a cancer. And when it comes back to bite us, we are frightened and call out to technology to save us. Yet reforms of our life and systems seem so difficult. The Bible says that mankind was created in the image of God. Mm. Having for the moment dispensed with God, we are now being recreated in the image of technology, our current overlord, who, to my eyes, has strong satanic features. The worship of technology and the modern economy is so dangerous that it can lead our species to extinction. This is therefore a diabolic or anti-life force when left unchecked, which we could term a satanic force. In pursuit of an image to express this, I constructed a dark poem when writing The Sower and the Seed, in which I entertained this possibility, that we have, as it were, been taken over by a satanic force, that is, a deeply anti-life energy, which is leading us towards an extinction event, not only of ourselves, but of all life on this planet. It's called Satan's Plan, and here it is. Of all addiction, I'm the source of lust and also greed. In destruction, I rejoice. Desire, I turn to need. Of appetites, I take control. I rage against the sacred. I will not rest until I've seen this world is full of hatred. Mankind's heart became my home.
His mind, it is my court. His body is my playground. My spies control his thought. In man's reason put I poison. Woman's heart is seized by fear. Children's tongue with lies I planted. In youth's hand I put a spear. The animal within you, the shadow in your soul. I am your carnal appetite. Corruption is my goal. The psychopath that's in you all. Enhancement that you crave. I give you so much pleasure. It drives you to your grave. The monster in your mind am I. The canker on the flower. The source of all confusion. The sadist with his power. Destroyer of all precious life. I kill you in the womb. The root of every illness. I'll dance upon your tomb. By me the light's extinguished. And hope will always fail. The psychopathic monster. I make your mind a jail. I take your heart and drink your blood. Your death, it is my pleasure. All life is crushed. Sweet joy is doomed. Destroy I every treasure. You think you can oppose this force? By you, I am persuaded. You think you can confront me, sure? Alone and quite unaided. You fool. You do not stand a chance without some higher help. My strength's unmatched, my cunning's sharp. I'm lodged inside yourself. But what are my intentions, pray? What is my dark plan? Humans are my instrument. I own the mind of man. But this is not enough for me. My plan has much more worth. Destroy all life is my chief goal. Annihilate the earth. You may pray, it never happens. This bitter cup let pass. Apocalypse is very close. The sands run through the glass. My fingers on the button. Death is finely poised. Thermonuclear weapons, they hardly make a noise. There is no need to lock your door, no point to make a dash. Now, just you settle down, my dear. It's over in a flash. The evolution of Earth's life, it took four billion years. Before you know it, all is gone. There is no time for tears. The only sound, then, to be heard, supposing you could hear it, will be my laughter in the wind. It's then too late to fear it. Mankind has been a willing fool. Earth's life will be quite past. My armies rise to other worlds. The universe is vast. Now, if this was the total story, a belief in the imminent end of all life is inevitable, I would not be wasting my time in these podcasts. My position is that the forces of creation and destruction are cosmic forces and that human beings are always divided between the mighty forces of light 
and dark, which are derived from this universal antinomy, this contradictory union of opposites. This position bears some resemblance to the metaphysical propositions of Zoroastrianism, the Gnostic Malachism, and the worshippers of the Hindu god Shiva, represented by Nataraja, the cosmic dance of the mighty opposites of creation and destruction just mentioned. When the great religions tell stories of the making of the world or cosmos, and the struggles of the gods before or at the creation of human beings, we can interpret this as a drama told in mythological form of the foundational structure of our consciousness. They are rather like archetypal dreams and can be interpreted in a similar manner. Within the psyche of early mankind, the two great principles of creation and destruction express themselves in the derived polarity of order versus chaos. This is expressed in the religions and myths of early civilizations, but is also at every single crisis juncture of these civilizations. These opposites can be traced as structuring principles of the cosmos, evolution, life, species existence and civilization. They can be found at all later levels in the human psyche and underlie mankind's own creative and destructive nature, sometimes termed good and evil. Creation myths locate the origins of human nature in the transpersonal realm rather than in mankind's own psyche. This is because up to the Western Enlightenment, the scientific Enlightenment, mankind chiefly thought mythologically and theologically about such matters as human nature, good and evil, the origins of consciousness and so on. The symbolic truth of creation stories, however, is that they are the expressions of the birth of consciousness rather than accounts of the actual origins of the world. Mankind possessed no theory of evolution up to very recently and therefore did not believe that human nature evolved from animals. However, the myths and narratives of early civilizations contain deep meta-psychological truth in symbolic form. The Chinese, Hindu and Egyptians had a vision of the opposites that underlie mankind's struggle and posited them as universal principles, as this narrative does also. The Chinese opposites of yin, the supple, and yang, the strong, symbolise interconnected forces that underpin the universe, the human body and mind. All further opposites, male and female, darkness and light, hot and cold, water and fire, earth and air, are its developments. Far from being antagonistic principles in this culture, they are an interconnected dynamic whole and form the ancient Chinese basis for understanding the world and human nature. Less well known is that the ancient Egyptians also held the dual principles of creation versus destruction, as well as order versus chaos, of equal importance in their mythology. The sun god, the symbol of consciousness itself, is raised by the superhuman effort out of the waters of chaos, that is out of the unconscious. Thus, the constructive creative principle for the Egyptians, Mart, M-A-A-T, is the basis of civilization, 
which struggles with the destructive forces against it, not only from nature, but from the darkness and violence within mankind. The scarab, or dung beetle, was venerated by the ancient Egyptians. It puts its eggs in dung and rolls it to a hole in the ground, where they are later to hatch. The image of the beetle rolling the ball was likened to the sun god rolling the sun. The earth became the underworld, the nightly journey of the sun god, and the new life from under the earth was the rising sun. Such images, as it were, life out of dung and consciousness out of dross, prefigure similar alchemical themes of the transformation of lead to gold. The connection to the life principle of sun, light, higher consciousness and our transcendent being is necessary to combat the darkness within ourselves. The Egyptian conception of time was at two levels. Firstly, that of the gods, in linear time consisting of narratives concerning their struggles, which constituted the archetypal principles that governed human existence and consciousness. Secondly, the time of mankind, which was circular, where, as a result of the gods' struggles, the cycle of our existence, its daily round, was created. This cycle was not meant to last forever, but like the finale to Wagner's opera The Ring of the Nibelung, one day ends and conditions return to their beginning in the primal ocean of the unconscious. Thus, one of the earliest and long-lasting civilizations intuited not only the origins of mankind, but also its possible end. Such a battle between opposites is of both collective and personal significance and is dramatically represented by the sun itself on its daily and nightly cycles. Ra, the sun god of consciousness, rules the day, but each night is devoured by the forces of darkness. Ra's reign is not secure, for each night he crosses on a bark over the waters fights with the serpent of chaos, Apep, and requires the help of Osiris, the principle of rebirth and renewal, so as to emerge the next day. This battle between the forces of light and darkness symbolises the inner state of mankind, the nature of our psyche. The forces of order, the creative principles that have fashioned the existence of not only life, but the human psyche, are threatened by chaos and destructiveness. The two images just mentioned from Egyptian mythology, the first, the sun god being raised out of the waters, and secondly, Ra, the sun god, on his nightly journey fighting the serpent of chaos, are put on my website, alanmulhern.com, under the philosophy section. The negative forces within our species mirror our creative potential because human consciousness is a magnified area for opposites to be acted out. What in an animal is bonding or aggression may in humans be love or hatred. What in an animal is a predatory instinct may in humans be intense brutality or psychopathy. 
the human being, considerably more complicated than any animal, has so much more that can go wrong in character formation. Human beings from the start of life, especially in the womb and birth experience, are extremely vulnerable, both physically and emotionally. Due to its early sensitivity, the psyche easily suffers intense insecurity with serious later consequences. Some of the recent 20th century examples of collective psychopathic brutality, such as Nazism, show such dark negativity in our species that despair in our collective future seems an obvious conclusion. However, Egyptian mythology indicates that a battle between the light and dark sides of our nature has been part of the human experience since the beginning and that the forces of rebirth may prevail. I have proposed a number of dimensions of the evolving world crisis. These are the economic, political, military, climatic, technological, social, to which we now have to add the pandemic. These also include the conflict of ideas, since it is our philosophies, belief systems, obsessions and ideologies that cause and influence these crises so deeply. Behind all these is the spiritual crisis of our time. We need a vision as total as the crises we face. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian of the rise and fall of civilizations, in his magnum opus, A Study in History, writes at the beginning of chapter 19, called The Schism in the Soul, the following words. The schism in the body social, which we have been hitherto examining, is a collective experience, and therefore superficial. Its significance lies in its being the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual rift. A schism in the souls of human beings will be found to underlie any schism that reveals itself on the surface of the society, which is the common ground of these human actors' respective fields of activity. As the podcast series progresses, we will examine these dimensions, which we also call the horsemen of the apocalypse. Apocalypse comes from the Greek word meaning revelation. It is also in the Bible associated with the idea of a great judgment and end times. The word quest in English means a higher or a sacred search. Our series is called The Quest and its mission is to reveal the nature of the interconnecting crises that we face in the 21st century. These have the potential of not only collapsing our civilization, but destroying it. Also, for the first time in history, we humans do have the ability to extinguish our species and perhaps destroy life on Earth. Such an existential calamity surely has a spiritual dimension, even in a godless world. There must be a metaphysical dimension to this evolving crisis. Or are we so trapped in the modern worldview that we have evolved by accident, that our consciousness and therefore our extinction has no meaning? Must we have a tremendous world trauma in order to awaken, to open our eyes to what we truly have, to realise the miracle we are so privileged to be part of, that our ideologies and obsessions with economic growth, competition, our greed and insatiable wars 
our subservience to technologies are the road to ruin of our planet, our societies, ourselves and our species, and perhaps life on Earth. Do we not have an immense responsibility? And are we going to destroy all we have? It is for this reason that our series calls the ultimate dimension of the coming crises, the spiritual crisis of our times. It is for this reason that I name as diabolic and satanic these life-destroying aspects of ourselves, our economies and our political systems. I will argue as these podcasts progress that it is only by this means of a spiritual awakening that a new vision can emerge that can save us. There has to be a spiritual rebirth because mankind's reason cannot solve the crises in front of us. The term apocalyptic is therefore appropriate to describe our age. We will approach this final horseman, the spiritual crisis, slowly and with great caution, for there is no telling the hour or the manner of its coming. However, I venture to say four things in advance. Firstly, the absence of spiritual vision has made the other crises more possible and greatly magnified. Secondly, a spiritual rebirth, should it come, will be intimately connected with a psychological dimension by which we deeply examine not just our individual shadow, to use the language of Carl Gustav Jung, but our collective shadow, especially as it is manifested in the social, economic and technological systems we create. Thirdly, another possibility is also emerging, that a dark solution is sought as an answer to the world crisis, in which technological domination of the human psyche, the reconfiguration of humanity in the image of this technology, and a new technocratic financial government elite dominate the whole planet. This movement has, I believe, already begun, and I would describe it as demonic or even satanic, and will believe itself the saviour of the planet and the human race. And fourthly, the spiritual rebirth, should it come, will involve the liberation and vision of the higher self or higher consciousness that lies within our psyche. What is required is not just knowledge, but a gnosis, that is, a revelation from the depths of the psyche. This gnosis, experienced by a few individuals at first, will link to the eternal experience of enlightenment across the history of our species, the best of the world's spiritual traditions, and can be the basis of a new world vision.